Well, good morning. The uh, scripture reading for today is going to be out of the book of Joel. It's in chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 21, the end of the chapter there. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to join me. You can also see it on the screen here behind me. It's Joel chapter 3, 12 through 21. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion." This has been the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Doxa Church. I am the infamous Dale Miller. It was talked about earlier. Um, This is a joy and honor to stand before you today and to close out this series in Joel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word Lord, I thank you for your leading and guiding of this congregation as we seek to sit under your authority. God, may you be exalted this morning. May we continue to lift you up, for you are holy, you are just, and you are merciful. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice this morning. Lord, I pray that's what you would do. You would speak through me this morning. Lord, may I not stand in front of you. Lord, may I truly stand behind you this morning. Lord, I thank you for all the prayers that have been lifted up on my behalf this morning and this week to stand before your people and to preach your word. Or may I trust in that. And may we trust in your word. Lord, I thank you for this space to be with your people, to be led and taught by you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been a long time uh, since I've had the opportunity to serve this body in the role of preaching. Uh, My last at bat was back in 2015. Wow, that's right. And uh, that is really a testimony to the men that God has called to this church to preach his word. 
And I'm excited to see that and to sit under their teaching and what the Lord is doing that as we continue to train men up to proclaim his word. Um, but a lot has changed since 2015. Uh, this hair right here, it was already talked about, was there was no salt in it. It was just pepper. Um, and really, I don't, I don't need to, to run down a, a list of things this morning that, that's changed since 2015. I think we all can sit in this room and know things have changed. But this morning, I'm going to start out just saying, remind us what hasn't changed. And that is our always loving, holy, triune God. God never changes. God is still right in everything he says and does and thinks. He still rules over all and is in control of all things. He is perfect and separate from sin. He knows all things. He never makes mistakes. He is all-powerful. He is kind and compassionate. God is faithful and he is patient. God is full of mercy and full of grace. And these attributes of God are displayed throughout the book of Joel to a people who are in the midst of a terrible time. So if you would, please join me back in chapter 1. Now that you can finally find it in your Bible, uh, in, in seminary, uh, one of the first classes this past year, uh, the professor talked about finding a book of the minor prophets, and everybody's kind of flipping, and everybody just stopped. He's like, I know you didn't find it that quick, all right? It's okay, relax a little bit. But uh, I do hope that if we spent the last four weeks in this book, that we start to, to own it, and we start to know it it's, uh, our, ourselves. And really, the book of, book of Joel, we, we don't know much about Joel himself, right? I mean, basically, we all only know his daddy's name, and that comes in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. But there is something noteworthy that I think we should gather from Joel as we've studied his word. Uh, the word the Lord gave him these last four weeks. He knew the word of God. In his short letter, he quotes, summarizes, makes connections to many Old Testament prophets. The book has references and ties to Amos, to Isaiah, to Nahum, to Zephaniah, to Obadiah, to Ezekiel, to Malachi, and the book that we studied way back in 2015, Exodus. Joel spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. But we can tell the Holy Spirit had a lot to work with. He knew the Word of God. In verse, he opens up his book, just to remind everybody as we, as we make our journey to chapter 3. He opens up his book, calling everyone to take note. Mark this down for the generations to come. Tell them about the wave after wave after wave after wave of destructing and devastate, devastating locust invasions. Then Joel calls the people to repentance. In verse 14, he says, Consecrate a fast, call a holy assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God? 
how the beasts groan, the herds of the cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep to suffer. Joel is talking real talk to the people. He's saying, open your eyes, see how bad things really are. But then he calls them to open their mouths and call out to the Lord. And Joel also includes himself in this call to repentance. Verse 19 says, To you, O Lord, I call. As we keep moving through the book in chapter 2, Joel moves from what is currently happening in Judah to what is about to happen. A great and mighty army is on the brink of invading and ravaging the people of Judah. Verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like hath never seen before, nor will again them there through the years of all generations. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moons are darkened. And the stars withdraw the shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Joel calls the people, again, to call a solemn assembly. Gather everyone. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? As I pause between verse 17 and 18, we can also see in between that space, and we read and study this book, that the, the people of the Lord did indeed return to the Lord. They did call out to him and repent, because verse 18 starts out with then. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on the people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations." I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. Verse 20, the northerner he's talking about there is this, this army that was on the brink of coming in. It was on the brink of invading and devastating the people. It's not talking about, just to make clear for us here, it's not talking about what has made Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, the fastest growing city in the United States. It's not those northerners, right? So welcome. We know that we're thankful for that and the ministry that we have of being in a city that's growing with a great call to be on mission for that. But let us camp out here for a second. We see the people repent and God answered their prayer. And that's been a theme for us as we walk through Joel. It's been a theme as we've gathered at 9 o'clock to pray for this service through this last month. What does it look like to repent. 
We know from 2 Corinthians, we see that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But there's a worldly grief that produces death. The majority of us have gathered here and we think about repentance, we, we quickly jump to, I need to change a behavior. I no longer need to do this over here. I need to start doing this over here. But Dr. Church, the foundation of repentance is relationship-based. It's a returning to the Lord first. The chief stipulation of, of God and his people was, was a relationship with them. In Exodus, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God, and you are my people. We have to come to the Lord first, return to him, and then we see the change in behavior. Note in verse 12, the call here in Joel is, there, is, is not a general or a specific call. It's a call to return to the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Turn your heart first back to the Lord. Confess and receive forgiveness is the call. And out of forgiveness, we walk and sin no more by the equipping power of God himself, the Holy Spirit in you. So again, Dr. Church, the, the call for us is to confess, repent, receive forgiveness, and out of that forgiveness we walk in sin no more by the equipping power of God himself. Also, I want you to note as we, we close out this series that, that their plea was to God. Their plea was to, on his behalf, on his goodness, in his righteousness, in his name, they weren't calling out to God in their righteousness or, or how good they were. Doxa Church, this morning, our prayer, my prayer, is that in our sin, in it, within it, while we're in it, that we will return to the Lord. For he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He even relents over disaster. And sadly, myself and many of us included, as we've had conversations within this body over this last month, we have mistaken and settled often for conviction instead of follow through with repentance. We've settled for conviction and fooled ourselves into thinking that that is true repentance. I have no desire, we have no desire to, to shame anyone into confession and repentance. But most of all, the Lord has no desire to shame anyone into confession and repentance. But I have a question this morning for, for us to wrestle through. We see that the Lord doesn't want to shame us to that. He's, he's calling us back to himself. But the question I want us to wrestle with this morning are, are we ashamed to confess and repent? My call to you this morning is do not be ashamed to be undone by the Lord. 
Do not be ashamed to be undone by the Lord. I think most of us in this room can, can track with Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So we, we draw that line. We're, we're good standing on that line. Yeah, I, I have to stand on this line that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name upon heaven given unto men at which you must be saved. But there's another line I want for us to draw, for myself and for this congregation. Don't be ashamed of the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't be ashamed of what He is doing in you and around you. Many of us know the story of the the Korean revival that happened in 1907. During that revival, a mighty wave of confession and repentance fell upon those gathered. The Lord, the Lord was already doing a great work in that area. People were being saved, people were gathering. This was actually a, a gathering of the ministry leaders in there. It was a large gathering. So there was a lot to celebrate what the Lord was doing. But in that meeting, one of the leaders publicly before everybody, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, confessed and repented to a brother in Christ. And through that action, when reconciliation was before everybody, the Holy Spirit dropped and fell, and a mighty wave of confession and repentance fell upon the whole gathered congregation. That spilled out into people returning home and can still confessing and repenting and repaying back things that how they have done wrong to people, living out this, this call to, to repent and to seek forgiveness from a brother or sister in Christ. What I've had to work this week of thinking about myself and our gatherings when I'm here with this same question Am I ashamed of what the Holy Spirit is doing in me? And through me? Am I ashamed to be undone by the Holy Spirit in this place and in this space? Surrounded, I have to ask my question if, if I'm ashamed to, to be undone by the Holy Spirit in this place, surrounded by my brothers and sisters in Christ, surrounded by my church family, there's no way I'm going to allow myself to be undone by the Holy Spirit around those in this community that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See, this community doesn't need me. What it desperately needs is to see the Holy Spirit's power dwelling in me and in us. And that is most clearly seen when we truly submit to the Spirit's work in our lives. In the book of Joel, we see the Lord answer the repentant prayers of his people, resulting in restoration. God promises to bless them, restoring what the locusts had consumed, including the restoration of their relationship between God and his people. I ask that this morning before we continue, this to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work in your heart. Don't be ashamed of what he's doing in and through you. Brothers and sisters, 
submit yourself to the Lord, he will not put you to shame. We see in the text that we have studied that, that it progresses from like a physical restoration for the people, what had the locusts had eaten, the Lord's going to provide all this stuff, but then we see again like this proclamation that the Lord is going to do a new thing, something new in the future, a spiritual movement, an outpouring of the Spirit. Verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. We see here that there's no exclusion will be made on the basis of gender, or age, or social station. David Duran has been very kind to me and Randy to point out, oh, we've gone through this, that that we have moved from the category of young men seeing visions to old men dreaming dreams. (laughs) But the work of this Spirit is not just on a particular person. What I want to see in this congregation is the work of the Spirit in everybody. And everybody being willing to say, Lord, use me as you see fit. Everybody, I feel like so often we come in this space, even myself, like trying to just show that I have it all together. And so fearful to being undone by the Spirit and what the Lord is doing. And I just, I just feel like in my own soul, like, Lord, I know that I, know I have to be grieving you if I'm doing that. And I just pray that there would be a, a freedom in this space. Once again, around our church family. If we don't have that freedom in this room, we're fooling ourselves to think we're going to be bold or do something outside of these doors. Going back to this promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, and that's what Randy walked us through last week in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, where we see the beginning of this prophecy fulfilled. And I want to point out this morning also uh, what the Apostle Paul encourages the church in Corinth about this verse. He encourages the church to pursue the gift of prophecy. He instructs them that the primary purpose of this gift is to strengthen, encourage, and comfort believers. For the one who prophesies edifies the church. And last week we received an excellent question uh, about the sermon. Not all questions we receive are excellent, but this one was. And the question was, was what? Okay, if you're, you're saying this is true, well, what should that look like? What should this outpouring of the Spirit look like at Doxa Church? And even me asking that question, I think it makes some people in this room like, uh-oh, here it comes. Or other people in this room like, all right, yes, here it comes. But truthfully, what should it look like? In many ways, it should look like what we see from the early church. It should look like God's people receiving divine insight into people, issues, events that serve to glorify Jesus and spread his kingdom. And we should pray for this for ourselves and for our church. And more importantly, we should pray 
that the Father will pour out his Spirit on Doxa Church in, in order to glorify Jesus. So I'll return to the question, are you ashamed? Are we ashamed of the work of the Holy Spirit being evident in our gatherings? If this is true, I pray we would not only be convicted by this, but we would respond in godly confession and repentance. And I trust, just as the Lord answered the repentant prayers of his people in Joel's day, he will answer ours. And as he does, we should expect that we, we see the Lord speaking through people when we gather in one-on-one or before or after a service or in our community groups or in our worship gatherings. We should see it among our children and teens and we should see it as we go out in our workplaces and as we move in, in and out of the marketplace each day. Lord, I pray, I hope that you will pray that that's what we will see. That we, what we will see the Lord do a work in us and through us into this community. So now I want to, to pose this, this question of, today, of, of the day to our text that we are going into in chapter 3. Are you ashamed? Are we ashamed of the truth that God will judge the nations? Now I get that many of you might be ashamed of how some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have handled this truth even the prior truth. And this subject matter shouldn't be addressed with with dry eyes or light heart. And I confess before you today that, that often my eyes are too dry and my heart is too light when I study or read these passages of Scripture. We must handle this truth with care and compassion. And we must press into the reality that this is a reality and not shy away from it. Hear this from Evangelical Convictions. It's a shameless plug for the class I'm doing on Wednesday night. I don't know if you heard about that. It is perhaps this notion of God's awesome holiness and his wrath that flows from it that we most need to grasp in our world today. Without it, the gospel makes no sense, and we have no conviction of our sin or a need of a Savior. And without it, we have no understanding of the new life to which we are called and the final goal of our salvation that we might share in the character of God himself. Chapter 3 of the book of Joel opens up with the, the timeline of the prophetic word being pushed out to the final last days. When the Lord sits to judge the nations, he will judge the multitudes of multitudes who have refused to give him honor and have refused to worship him. Verse 1 says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there and on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up their land and have casted lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Note that the Lord is in charge of this gathering. It says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is 
a location that you're not going to find in, in the back of your study Bible. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. It's also called the Valley of Decision or Verdict Valley. These verses are not painting the picture that, that God is gathering these multitudes of multitudes to give them time to make a decision. That time is over. It is time for God Almighty to place the guilty verdict on those who have rejected him. The Lord highlights how these nations have dealt shamefully with his people, treating them as property of little value, trading lives of boys and girls for a moment of pleasure. In verses 4 through 8, we see God turn his focus directly to Tyre, Sidon, and those regions of Philistia, calling out their wicked works of enslaving the people of Judah as he makes known to them that he will cause them to experience the same works even to a greater degree. Verse 9 begins a poetic section that moves the focus back to all nations that the Lord will stand against. The Lord is inviting his enemies to battle and to and and he's declaring the real purpose of the encounter, which is judgment. Verse 9 says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat, their, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And these, these verses, the Lord is basically taunting the nations, saying, hey, take everything you got. Take the iron that you have over there for farming tools. Take that. Turn it into a sword. Turn it into a spear. Bring on. Bring it. Bring everything. We see, this, we see this great build up for an epic battle, but the Almighty is not threatened. God is fully in charge, and He plans to sit to carry out His judicial sentence upon the nation's war crimes against His people. Jesus echoes this message in the passage in, in the, He shares in Matthew 25. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of this world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteousness into eternal life. So how should we interact with the sobering truth that the Lord will judge his enemies? starts by recognizing 
that he is the judge and I'm not. The Lord alone has the right to sit as judge over his creation. I believe submitting to this basic truth will open our hearts to the words of Jesus to love our enemies and to love his enemies. Don't let, don't let your heart turn to anger. And Tyson opened us up in prayer. There was a specific thing in there that we're praying that, Lord, don't let our hearts turn to anger. For many in this room, that means turning off the constant stream of news and social media. See, there, there's no way that our hearts can stay soft to those far from the Lord, to those who are, who are his enemies, if our hearts are full of anger. Jesus had to constantly teach and show his disciples what it looked like to love and care for those outside the Jewish community. The truth of the pending judgment should bring urgency to our lives to those or for those who will face the wrath of God. And the enemy is so crafty. As I think about us, I think about myself. He has done a work to, f- to basically fool me into believing that my neighbors, that my co-workers, and the multitudes living in this community are not open to the gospel. He's basically sidelined me and side- sidelined most of us here, if we're honest, from being on mission because in the back of our minds we're thinking, nah, mm-mm, they don't, they don't want to hear about God. They don't want to hear about God, the God of the Bible. They don't want to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. I have to keep reminding myself in that, in that battle, that work that the, the deceiver has done to deceive me, I feel like the work that I have to do and I hope the work that we will do together is to remind ourselves that most people don't know they're enemies of God. They have no clue this is in store for them. As I share with many people about my transition out of pharmacy, I'm, I'm shocked about how many people have no clue what seminary is. I say, it's just my normal statement. And I'm leaving the hospital. I've started seminary. And that, the question is like, well, what is that? And I, I realize, like, I have lived in this Christian bubble and live in a Christian bubble. It just, that even shocks me. Um, my bride had the opportunity to go up with the golfs to celebrate Megan's graduation and uh, and she was that uh, brave one on the plane that sat by somebody and the door opened for the gospel to be proclaimed. And what's beautiful about that is the realization that the young man that was coming down to visit had no clue, zero clue. There was no foundation. There was no biblical foundation for teacher to work off of. And so that in itself, even she confesses like, wow, like I didn't realize like he had no clue about the things of the Lord. And I think we, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that, that people don't want to hear. And, the, and she had a great interaction. I'm sure she's like, I, I'm probably weird right now, but that's okay. And I think that's something we have to do as well, have to recognize it's okay. We're going to look different. We're going to sound foolish. Because for those who don't believe this, it does sound foolish, right? And we can, we can say that. We can say, like, it sounded foolish to us before we believed it. We have to remember that. And that should draw us to a compassion to know that their eyes are blinded by the evil one. 
We don't need to have anger in our hearts with them. We're not trying to win this argument. We're trying to love them into, up into the Lord. The Lord will do a work in them. We are faithful to present the truths of God. But I believe a key factor for us is that we have to constantly remind ourselves that while we were weak, the right Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were enemies. And as I look at our congregation and think of our, our makeup, I have a, just one specific action that I think most of us in this room can, can, can follow through with this morning. I want you to, I want you to consider inviting an unbeliever over to dinner before you invite them to church. And just a, just a tip, don't lead with enemy of God. Will you pass the salad? Uh, son of disobedience, salt and pepper, please. Like, no, no, that's not, that's not what we're calling to. I think that's what we think. Like, oh, what do I got to do? How, I got to just drop this truth on them right then. No, that's not what shining light in the darkness looks like, with compassion and care. No, it looks like this. I, I just reminded myself just that Jesus himself spoke these words in John 3.16. This was Jesus speaking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does the work, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that the works have been carried out in God. I pray, that, I pray that would be our heart posture as we invite unbelievers into our lives. And it would be evident that we have carried out it out in the name of God. Our urgency to reach those who are at this moment enemies of God should be spurred on because we see in these verses the day of judgment is near. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Jesus himself says that he is coming soon. The book of Joel closes out with the transition from the judgment of the Lord to the restoration of all things. And we get a picture there of what it looks like. The Lord 
starts off by giving a self-revelation that he will be there and then the assurance that he will be there in his full presence and protection. Verse 18, it says, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth in the house, from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. God's presence in Zion is the key to the, res- the restoration of the land. In the very areas that we, we studied and we, we talked about so much at the beginning of this book we're, that, were, that were destroyed, we see that Joel uses this picture to show where they have new life has been brought in. In the very areas where sin and wrath had left destruction, God made new life blossom. God's presence is the means by which the dry and parched land is transformed into newness of life. The book of Joel ends with the declaration that the Lord dwells in Zion. And this is, this is what, that reason is why we keep praying and asking God to be present in our midst. And what I want to hear you as we close out this morning specifically about Jesus is that Jesus is the life-giving water that restores and brings new life. Water that we see in Joel and in Revelation and Ezekiel comes from the throne of the Lord. It's from Jesus himself. He is the living water that we need. The book of John, in the book of John, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink with the promise that whoever believes in me as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow living waters. Believer, know this this morning. The source of living water is in you. Don't, I don't want you to leave this place thinking that it is not in you. The Holy Spirit, when you are saved, dwells in you. I want you to, to grasp the fact that the source of living water is in you. But many of us need the Lord to move our hearts in a way that this living water begins to flow out like a river. I think a lot of us feel dull and, and struggle because we know that this source is in us, but we just see a trickle coming out. But we see in, in John, he says that, that the hearts will flow rivers of living water. And that's what we should pray for. That's what we should confess and repent of. We say, Lord, I know you've... You, you desire to see living water flow out of me. And whatever that looks like, we, we need to confess and repent of. We need to seek the Lord and ask, Lord, it could be something or it could not be. It could just be a dry season. But our still is our cry, Lord, work in me, Lord. Have living waters flow out of my heart into this community. As you come this morning forward to to receive Christ's broken body for you and his blood shed for you. I'd ask you to return to your seats and and ask the Lord to use this meal to nourish your heart. That this meal would bring spiritual nourishment to you. That in that you you would ask the Lord, Lord, do a work in me that my heart would flow your living waters.
knowing that soon there will be a day that we get to feast with our Lord and Savior face to face. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I, just, I thank you so much for your, your word. As we get to just to hear and sit in it and under it. Lord, I, I do pray, Holy Spirit, you would do a work. Lord, we wouldn't be brought to a part that, that the evil one would use this word or any word to bring us to, to condemnation, Lord. That we would see, Holy Spirit, that you are doing a, a loving work with us. To, you're calling us to return to you. Lord, we know that, that you are not ashamed of us. Well, we might sometimes act ashamed or we do not make the proclamation that we should. But Lord, we praise you that you are not ashamed of us, of us. Lord, you are faithful when we are faithless. Lord, it's most clearly seen on the cross that you, you died for us while we were enemies. Lord, I pray that this morning we would we wouldn't just allow conviction to sit in our heart and then walk away. Lord, we would truly come to you in repentance. We would return to you first. And then we would seek out of your power for whatever change that you're calling in our lives. Lord, I thank you for your word. And we see that, that now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, Lord, I pray specifically that you would continue to work in this space and you would bring freedom into it. Lord, that you would bring true repentance and confession and that we'd be able to come to your table with a great celebration, knowing that one day Lord, we will not have this struggle. We will feast with you in eternity as you make all things new. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.